to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watch Stargate and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I'm going to be hosting today. I'm Rose, one of the super fans of Stargate. And with me, as always, Samantha, also a super fan. And Malika is still deciding whether she's even a fan. Today, we will be discussing episode six of season one, Cold Lazarus. So little disclaimer, this episode does involve discussion of the death of a child. So use your discretion in listening. All right, Cold Lazarus. So this episode deals a lot with O'Neill and his backstory, specifically the event that got him involved in the Stargate in the first place, the death of his son from shooting himself with his own gun and the breakup of his marriage. So, you know, I never thought of this as an episode that I particularly like, but going back and watching it, I actually got some more out of it than I used to or that I remember. So we come into this planet. There's this field of broken crystals. My feeling is that these crystals look like penises. (laughs) And I'm surprised that nobody really mentioned that on the show or they that like nobody who was involved in the production of the show was like, maybe we can make them look less like penises. (laughs) I saw a whole bunch of blue, giant blue dicks, too. I saw a bunch of candy, like someone went to the candy store, got a whole bunch of those uh, lemon drops and those blue crystal pop rocks and then just spread them all around. Well, so clearly Malik and I have much dirtier minds. Than you. <laughs> we <laughs> are in the gutter. And Sam is like, candy. Well, the, the broken ones are fine. But like when they, when O'Neill comes to that giant unbroken one, I'm like, that could not be more phallic looking. And why did we have to go there? Maybe they could have made it a slightly different shape or less gigantic (laughs) is my feeling. And I'm thinking there's a lot of people that go into producing a show that they must have had to like be looking at this and nobody thought giant blue penis or maybe they didn't thought that was what they were going for. I don't know. Why did they use these colors, these bright child colors? Maybe they were trying to do something different than the usual trees, forests, planet. I guess so. Yeah. The usual uh, Canada. So we have these giant penis crystals. Nobody's really sure what's going on. O'Neill approaches one, gets some kind of shock that knocks him out. And then we see his duplicate or somebody who looks like his duplicate go back through the gate with them. Nobody seems to realize that he's not genuine O'Neill. Seems to be acting very strange. Looks through O'Neill's personal belongings, sees pictures of his son and his family, somehow ends up at Sarah, O'Neill's ex-wife's house. So some things to think about with this episode. First time, I think we get some more information about Jack's ex-wife, Sarah. First of all, seems like Jack has a thing for women with short blonde hair who like fix things, who are mechanically inclined, whose names start with S. Agreed. Agreed. Later on in the episode where Sarah and Sam are walking down the the hallway in the hospital, the haircuts were exactly the same exact. I was like, this is, this is not okay. (laughs) So he has a very specific type, I would say. 
up until this point, it seems like this is this is what he likes. Right. And apparently that was not intentional. That the casting was not intentional to, to look like Carter. I'm trying to think in like 1997, if that was like a really popular haircut. I think the Rachel was big in 1997. But that did not look like a Rachel. It did not look like a Rachel. But the thing is, is that we've seen lots of other, and not lots, but a few other women, mostly brunettes, and they all have regular, just like long hair, just kind of nondescript. It's these blondes. In the first episode, remember, there was the blonde that was kidnapped, who was from one of the Stargate teams. She had this short kind of mushroom. I I don't even know. I'm sure there's a name for it, (laughs) but it's a weird weird haircut so not a lot of hairstyle diversity in the acting pool in vancouver in 1997 apparently or maybe that just the creators have a type mm-hmm. not just o'neill <laughs> so aside from the type and also i like the fixing the car aspect of it like i it, i think it's signaled that he really likes these kick-ass women who are sort of take charge that seems to be something that he gravitates towards which makes you like him a little bit more but you get an idea of what happened with their relationship. And it's really the first time we see that. Like we know his son died in the movie. You see a little bit of Sarah O'Neill and how the son dying sort of precipitated the end of their relationship. And now you get more of a sense why. So what do we think about that? I was surprised that O'Neill's son, Charlie, had shot himself in the house. I mean, we don't have that backstory. So the idea of having, of living through your 10-year-old son dying from your gun must have been extremely traumatic to both parents. And I'm pretty sure that that's, that often breaks up marriages. So it's kind of a trope, but I thought that it was portrayed pretty good on this. The anger, but then also the anger really, really covering up the, the sadness in the relationship in between both of them. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think they were kind of, you know, the movie is a lot heavier and and the O'Neill character is so much different in the movie because he's not funny. You know, he's really clearly a a broken man on a suicide mission. And that's how it's played. And it's a much heavier story. And I, I, my understanding is when Richard Dean Anderson agreed to do the show, he, his, one of his conditions was that we need more comic relief into this character. It has to be a lighter character. And the show is a lot lighter. I mean, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be a dark, heavy show all the time. And, but yet you have this material and you have to deal with it. And I think that this felt like a way that they sort of brought a little bit of closure to that incident. Not that you ever could really get over that, but it it sort of brought closure and relief into how he was feeling about that and allowed him to move forward a little bit. How long had it been since his son's death? I think the idea is that there's a year in between the events of the movie and when they, and Children of the Gods. So probably, I don't know, maybe two years. So not that long. Overall, this episode did a good job of dealing with a really heavy traumatic subject and doing it well. So what about the rest of the team? So we have O'Neill. This really is an O'Neill-focused episode, but we do have Sam and Daniel working on the crystal and studying it. Also some great shots of giant penis crystals in the lab. (laughs) Again, an opportunity for production folks to be like, maybe this doesn't look right, but did not. (laughs) Instead, they put a face on it. (laughs) (laughs) They did put a face on it a couple of times. So this, you know, I always say like the line between the ridiculous and the profound is in sci-fi is like really, really thin. This actually didn't cross it for me. I think that this was a a well-done episode, even with the giant face or the the face on the giant penis 
talking to them, it still felt like watchable. It still felt like there was a story that was interesting. And I think you get a little bit more of Daniel than we have previously in this. Still not a whole lot. We still haven't really had a Daniel episode, but you get a little bit more of him. And of course, Sam is an expert on crystals because it's sciencey. Did you think that it was kind of, I felt a little cringy about Daniel telling Sam everything about O'Neill. Like he should have been keeping it confidential? At least some of it. I don't know. It, it felt kind of maybe you shouldn't be sharing this personal information with a colleague. But then there, it, it, it is Daniel. So <laughs> I don't think Daniel has great boundaries. I agree. <laughs> Especially when it comes to ladies. And Carter seemed interested, not not overly interested, just curious about O'Neill. And, you know, to me, it was weird that that hadn't come up like, you know, the whole thing with his son. It was it was known because in the movie when they recruit O'Neill for the Stargate mission, the whoever goes to see him, the guys from the Air Force sort of talk amongst themselves in their car. Like it's, it seems like it's this rumor that some people know about it and other people don't. Everyone's like, why is this guy so weird? And people are like, oh, don't you know? this happened with his son. And I felt like this was another example about that, where even though they're on the same team and they work really closely together, she really had no idea about this. She thought he was married and was like, not all that surprised about it. So it, I don't know. It's showed to me that there was still quite a lot of distance between them at this point in their relationship. But yeah, I think Daniel maybe should have not been so forthcoming. It felt gossipy, but we saw in the last episode that Daniel and, and Sam liked to gossip. It's their budding friendship. It is. And, you know, it's like, I think it's interesting because O'Neill's the leader of the team and O'Neill and Daniel have this relationship from before. And so they have this like weird, intense friendship, even though they're very different. And then O'Neill is obviously Sam's commanding officer. So they have to have that professional distance. But Daniel and Sam always seem like they're the most peer like of the four of them. And so over the last few episodes, I feel like we've gotten to see them develop that friendship, that peer friendship on their own. And Teal, poor guy, still kind of hanging on the outskirts, but knows a lot about Chicago sports teams. <laughs> I liked how he turned on the TV and he would just, it was the worst stuff. <laughs> the worst news, just the dirtiness of, and violence of humanity and a punk song. <laughs> yeah. a punk video. Was that like MTV? <laughs> it looks like they get cable at the SGC. I was like, you know, these two things don't go together. That's not nice. Yeah, you would think randomly flipping the channels, you would have hit on some like cartoons or something. Yeah, I did like the whole like, you, your world is strange, so is yours <laughs> retort. So what did you guys think of RDA's acting choices as Crystal Jack? I liked Crystal Jack. I thought you did a good job. You didn't like it? No. I didn't. What did you like? I'm on, I'm on side. I'm on Sam's side. What, like too stiff? Too staccato. It, he was almost channeling William Chatner. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like, I would think that anybody who knew O'Neill for five minutes would know that that, that is not O'Neill, especially once he was in the hospital and his energy was being drained. It got even more, there was more pauses. And it sounded even weirder, which actually went away when he became Charles, uh, Charlie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Carter should have said something about that because O'Neill definitely was not himself in the locker room. He didn't really say much. So, I mean, I guess they could have 
chalked it up to him just being in a bad mood or not feeling well or something, but yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. he definitely didn't seem like himself. And given the work that they do, it seems like there should be a rule that if one of them is acting out of the ordinary, it should be reported. Well, especially after that, they had that whole Kowalski possessed by a gold experience. Yeah. Can't say they're not aware of that possibility. <laughs> so he, he was obviously trying to be different, like, like differentiate real O'Neill from fake O'Neill, but maybe went a little too far. I agree. So another thing that I think is interesting about this episode, this is the first time we see something that happens with the Stargate kind of spill out into regular American society. You know, up until this point, we've really only seen the only part of Earth we've we've seen is the SGC. And this time we got out into the community. We went to somebody's house. We went to the hospital. I think people would have been a little more freaked out by watching somebody like apparently convulse with lightning all over him. <laughs> And then like having to evacuate an entire hospital because of some like energy creature. Everyone seemed real chill about those things. It wasn't just lightning. It was blue lightning mm -hmm. that shorted out electronics and knocked people across the room. <laughs> yeah. How are you? Are you going to have all the nurses, doctors, patients sign NDAs? How do you, how do you get, put this genie back in the bottle? Right. This blue penis back in the bottle. <laughs> and the local sheriff appeared to at least have some idea. Like he, he was coordinating the response outside and he's like, we're waiting for Colonel O'Neill's signal. So obviously there's some communication between the military base and the local law, law enforcement, which again, seems a little like this just doesn't seem like a secret that would keep, right? It's too big. People don't keep secrets well. It's why whenever people talk about conspiracy theories, I'm like, do you know how hard it is for like five people to keep a secret, let alone like thousands. So that, and so, and then we're just supposed to believe that this sheriff doesn't go home to his wife and say, Oh, guess what happened today? And these doctors are like some weird shit happened at the hospital today. <laughs> I don't know. And like reach out to their doctor friends in other States. It just feels like this kind of thing would start unraveling pretty quickly. Maybe they're used to it because of their proximity to the, uh, the air force base. There's just like weird stuff happens there. We don't ask questions. Is yeah, <laughs> maybe. So we have this relationship. This isn't real O'Neill having these profound moments and having these breakthroughs with Sarah. So this is really Sarah's story. This imposter is getting her to experience all these feelings about O'Neill and about their lost son. So I think that's interesting that this closure in a sense isn't really happening for Jack. So then at the end of the episode, did real Jack ever experience closure if the bulk of the episode was just um, blue dick Jack? <laughs> I think so. I think so. I mean, it was super, super prime cheese when Charlie touches his heart and says, he is in here, your heart. So I think that, that gave O'Neill some closure, especially his interactions with Sarah as he's leading Charlie out of the hospital to take him back to the Stargate. So I do think that O'Neill had some closure. I think Sarah's closure was much more profound because she had it with Charlie, but she also had it with O'Neill. Yeah. And we don't really see what happens once they go through the Stargate, you know, to return Crystal Charlie back to his planet. But I like to think that he, because when, when at the end, when he's talking to Sarah, she tries to explain to him what had happened. And he's like, oh, I have a pretty good idea. So he knows what was going on. He knows what he was feeling and that crystal him was 
had some idea of what he was feeling and that's why he was there in the first place. You know, and I do think it's interesting, like when we find out later what the crystal crystal deck is doing and why he's there, that for all of Jack's like being a funny guy and being the leader and not talking about his personal life, this pain was so top on his mind. It was so obviously the mo- the thing that was making him the most damaged that that's what this entity noticed when it tried to help him. It's like, oh, this is the wound. This is the primary wound of this person, which means it must've been taking up a lot of his brain space and, and he wasn't letting that. Yeah, that's a good point. He hit it pretty well. <laughs> well, Alien O'Neill did say that when he went into regular O'Neill's brain, that he saw a warrior and he was looking for physical pain, but instead he found this trauma. I thought you just said lawyer. Wait, what did you say? He saw a warrior. warrior. A warrior. Warrior. I apologize. It's my- Definitely not a lawyer. My accent. (laughs) My California accent. You do have a California accent. I do. I totally do, dude. It's like, whatever's bra. My my Brooklyn will come out sometimes, but I keep it in a check right now. I don't want to freak you guys out. Okay. <laughs> so when we, we see Sarah and O'Neill together, there's clearly love there. Seems like they were very happy until this happened. And then their relationship ended. Do we think that this is a closure for them or a beginning of a new period for them? I think it's a beginning of a new period period. Although we don't actually see that, but I I think I could see them becoming friends after this. But not a couple. No, no, of course not. (laughs) And let's try to set, let's try to set our shipper inclinations aside for the moment. I I don't think so. I, um, and maybe it's because I, I have kids of my own. I think that once your kids die in a relationship and that relationship then breaks up, I I think it's very hard to, to go back to that partner. Yeah. I mean, I've luckily never had to experience that trauma, uh, but I think, I think it, to me, it also seems like it would be hard for them to repair that kind of damage, but it seems that they were able to like get what they needed from each other in this moment and have some kind of closure and then move on. And then I think she says something like, see you around Jack. To me, that wasn't implying that they were going to like remain close, but that there would always be love between them. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, I think he still loves her and he might still continue to love her years later but I don't think they're going to go back to a romantic relationship. So I kind of, I agree that the whole crystal turning into Charlie is like prime time cheese factor afternoon, special TV. It feels a little on the nose. And yet I cried. Me too. (laughs) That was my secret. (laughs) I totally cried. And I've seen this episode like 10 times. So I'm not sure what my excuse is. Like the, the entire episode, I was like, this episode is so long. It's so boring. Nothing's <laughs> happening. Every five minutes, I get a little tidbit, something that's useful. And then I'm like bawling at the end. I was very upset with myself. I know. I felt emotionally manipulated. <laughs> it totally worked. It was it was so cheesy, but it absolutely, it absolutely worked. Yeah. With little Charlie reaching up and grabbing her hand. It was a lot. So was that done well? Or was that too much? I mean, I don't know. I think if you've lost your son in this horrible, violent, traumatic way, do you really want to be confronted with his image and knowing it's not really him and he's really gone? I don't think I'd want that. I think I'd be traumatized by that. I found it kind of sick that the writers did this to Sarah and because she couldn't 
differentiate alien Charlie from regular dead Charlie. And it just felt extremely emotionally manipulative. And I hate that I cried because it was, it was really cringeworthy seeing her interact with her dead son. It's really upsetting. Yeah. And do you think she gets the Stargate briefing after this? I think she's entitled to it. I think she gets the, uh, I think she gets that thing from men in black, the like pen. (laughs) The forget thing. (laughs) I mean, how, how do you not, how do you not go home and, and tell your dad who she's living with Charlie's grandfather, look what happened to me. What happened to me and O'Neill? I got closure from this trauma because there's an alien Charlie at the hospital who was O'Neill and shooting blue electric lightning all over the hospital. Like, how do you, how do you keep that a secret? Yeah. I mean, I think she definitely gets, I think, well, does she get it from O'Neill or from somebody else? The whole, like, this is what a Stargate is, you know, the, the need to know summary. So she has some idea of what happened and is warned not to talk about it. Maybe they set her up with like a Stargate therapist or something. I hope they have a Stargate <laughs> therapist because I think I need to see them after <laughs> this episode. So who is Lazarus? So because this episode is called Cold Lazarus, I did some research on Lazarus from the Bible, which I assume is the only Lazarus really <laughs> that they could be talking about. There is another Lazarus in the Bible, but he's a very minor character. But this, I think that it is swirling around Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus is from the Gospel of John from the New Testament, chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. My biblical education stopped at the Old Testament for obvious reasons. So the research I did talks about how this was Jesus's last miracle before his passion. The passion part is the last part of his life. That's the entry into Jerusalem, the last supper, his arrest and eventual trial. Then comes the crucifixion and resurrection. So this is the last miracle that was done by Jesus before the authorities were like, okay, we need to kill Jesus because he's getting too many followers. There's too many people believing in him. So this is the miracle that tips the authorities over the edge against Jesus. The story is, is that Lazarus' sisters contacted Jesus and were like, he's dying, come. Jesus is like, no, I'm not coming. (laughs) I'm not coming right away because we kind of need everybody to see that Lazarus is definitely dead. So he eventually gets over to Bethany and he meets with the sisters. One of the sisters says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he are, were dead, yet sh- shall he live. And sorry, <laughs> this is, I like, I talk like this all the time. And whoever, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And that's from John. And Martha, Lazarus's sister says, okay, we believe in you. And then Jesus wept. Jesus says a prayer, then says, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of his funeral cave and is still wrapped in his uh, grave cloths. And he's alive. And he's alive. And he goes on and and lives his life. So I I don't understand why the title is cold Jesus. I don't know if that. Cold Lazarus. 
Cold Lazarus, sorry. Uh, Cold Lazarus, I don't know if that refers to the blue crystals. I don't know if that refers to the way the fake or alien O'Neill is talking, but it feels like fake O'Neill turning into Charlie is the resurrection. So Charlie is like Lazarus and the, the biblical part of it feels like Charlie will always live in O'Neill and Sarah and will never die. It's interesting that this is the second episode in a row with like some pretty intense biblical parallels or biblical and biblical references. But yeah, I can, it does. I mean, in some ways it does feel like parallel to that story, but also that the resurrection isn't real. I mean, Charlie isn't alive. You know, he lives in your heart, I all that. But, you know, at the end he he goes away. It's not really him. Whoever wrote this really sat down with the Bible, really thought about this. This isn't like some of the other tropes in sci-fi where you just resurrect somebody from the dead and you call the movie the Lazarus effect or something like that. This feels like somebody really sat down and really constructed a script around the story of Jesus and Lazarus, which I'm impressed with, but it's, yeah, it's a little strange that we got two episodes in a row that dealt with religion this heavily. I I, I wonder if this episode has different meaning depending on your religious exposure or religious leanings. So So Malika, do you have any religious upbringing? Were you raised with any religious tradition? My mom is an agnostic and my dad is a militant atheist. So I'm going to say no. So my, yeah, uh, my mom actually had to hide me from her friend who tried to uh, steal me away as a baby to get me baptized. So yeah, no. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting because I have pretty extensive religious upbringing. I went to Jew- a religious school until I was 13, learned, I read the entire Old Testament in Hebrew multiple times, but obviously I was a Jewish school, so we didn't deal with Jesus in any capacity. So this is, this is way outside of my wheelhouse, but first commandment, that's something I did have a lot of experience with. All right. So how many chevrons do we give this episode? Malika, why don't you start? Overall, I would give it three chevrons because I did, I was really bored and kind of getting angry at the two of you for making me watch this. Uh, Then the crying happened. So I give it five chevrons and I give it four chevrons for the, or no, maybe seven, seven chevrons for how after reading the gospel of John and the story of Lazarus, how well-constructed I believe this script actually was. I'm still mad at you guys for making me watch it though. And cry. So what's your, so, okay. So you said three, seven and five. (laughs) So what does that mean? (laughs) So I guess that average, I don't do math is five ish, five, five five point something. No, uh, it doesn't feel like a five. I stick with the three. Let's give it. (laughs) Okay. Sam, how many chevrons for you? I would give it two chevrons. No matter how many times I've watched this episode, I never get over those horrible candy colors. You guys are tough critics. I'm going to say four. I'm going to be a little more generous. It's definitely not one of my favorite episodes. I do find it really intense and emotional and not always in a good way. And it's just not as, it's not that enjoyable to watch, but I do like, I I do like the way it illuminates O'Neill's character a little bit more. And I think 
you know, sort of addresses this difficult chapter in his life and sort of lets him move on from it a little bit. So I'm going to stick with a solid four. Now, would you, do you think this episode would be made today or would be different in any way? Probably different. I, I don't, I think the special effects would be a little better. I appreciate that they made a crystal, the alien of the week, instead of just putting a uh, brightly colored outfit and a belly shirt on a guy, but they needed needed to work a little more on that crystal and not make it so phallic. Yeah, I think the penis part of it would be different unless they were like really explicitly trying to make it penis-like. The special effects would obviously be different. And I think the story would be a little different. I don't know. I feel like it, it, there was an opportunity to go a little bit deeper and it wasn't taken and it would maybe be different today. I mean, it's hard to say because I feel like shows today are so serialized. It's really hard to get these kind of show anymore where it's just really like each episode is a standalone. Everything is a serialized storyline. So I think O'Neill would probably have a much longer multi-episode arc processing the death of his son. I think it would pretty much be the same. Maybe maybe a little bit better acting. Maybe his director would have given him some notes about how to be the alien O'Neill. I understand the dislike of the big blue dicks slash candy, but... I mean, the purpose was to show the intactness versus the kind of murdered, if we can even use that word, crystals, which were all shattered all over the place from the Gould killing all of these crystals, right? The erect versus the uh, flaccid <laughs> ones. <laughs> I like to think of it as uh, more like big penises versus little penises. <laughs> I mean, I get that this is what crystals are shaped like. Like if you're going to do a crystal based life form, that's what crystals look like. But it just the giant one sticking out of the bed of little ones. It looks like a dick sticking out of pubic hair. It was very hard for me to not see that visual. Maybe my mind is in the gutter and most Stargate fans have a pure sense. of <laughs> They can watch shows without seeing dicks everywhere. I cannot. There's a dick. I'm going to see it. And there's this was a whole lot of dicks. And it kind of like the contrast of (laughs) watching this very, very phallic imagery with such an intense storyline was a little disjointed. Yeah. Kind of took you out of it. So next week we will be watching the Knox is a great episode. If I do say so not to like spoil anything. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Yeah. Blue Dick O'Neill. Like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. If you don't like us, still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole, Facebook at Probing the Wormhole. You can also contact us on our website at probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.